Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. There was actually a, quite a um, diversification of tarpon in the Cretaceous period. There was actually 14 different species of tarpon wow. during, that, during that time period. And their fossil, and record, that, the their fossil records for all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I always joke, you know, uh, you know, if you ever find a um, a hot tub time machine, you know, you want to go to the Cretaceous period because at that <laughs> time there was fourteen different species of tarpon, you know, on the on the planet then. So yeah, that's all a you need is a, a little little boat and some horsepower and a fly rod, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> This is the Tom Rowland Podcast, fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or You can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Mike Larkin, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. 
Mike, how you doing? Good. How are you, Tom? Man, I'm doing great. It's really nice to catch up with you. We were talking right before this about how, how long we've known each other and kind of been around one another, but it's nice to to get you on the podcast here. I know you got some incredible information for us. Um, so looking forward to it, man. Yeah, yeah. Just really gonna focus on on tarpon and uh such a fascinating creature and, and uh you know a lot of a lot of science has been done on them, thank goodness. There's still more to be done. But anyway, there's so some really interesting facts. About is that them. what you've kind of dedicated your career to? I mean, it seems like the the majority of your of your career has been spent on tarpon or bonefish or I don't know what other fish. But what tell tell yeah. me about your career and and what yeah. how much time you put towards this? Sure, I was really really lucky. I did get to focus in, in my the early stages of my career on on bonefish and tarpon. In fact, um, my first job after college, I was working in the Keys for the state of Florida, the Fish and Wildlife. <laughs> Uh, Conservation Commission, and then that's where I got I got hooked on bonefish. I didn't have a boat, I had a kayak, and as well as tarpon as well. Uh, and then um, from there, just kind of uh, some research opportunities opened up at University of Miami for grad school. Um, then I focused my my doctorate on uh, bonefish and tarpon. So it was really, really lucky. In fact, uh, I'm going to age myself here, but I was one of two grad students to ever be funded by. Now they're called the. Um, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. But mm-hmm. back when I was there, it was Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited. It was me, the star guy, Robert Humston. Uh, we were the first two grad students ever funded by by Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited. Back, That's what it was called when I started. Wow. And yeah, I was really, really lucky there and very fortunate. What, what kind of research were, were was some of the earliest stuff that you were doing for, for them? Yeah, well, mine was really trying to do an assessment of the Florida Keys um, bonefish population. So, and that, uh, I know this one is really going to focus on tarpon, and we're going to have another. We'll also talk about bonefish in a future podcast. But really, just trying to trying to get um, it was a challenge because you know they're not dead fish at the dock. A lot mm-hmm. of the assessments they look at they look at the size of fish, the numbers of fish dead at the dock, and and bonefish is a primary catch and release fishery. So just trying to get different data sources to fill in the gaps, whether it's aging growth, whether it's mortality, whether it's recruitment, uh, the tagging was a huge part of that. You know, looking at recruitment and looking at the, I can translate the length to ages, looking at the age classes in a fishery, estimate mortality. Um, I was also very fortunate to work on uh, the first ever uh, satellite tagging of tarpon. So that was a lot of fun too, to see where they're moving and, and um, tracking them and learn a lot more about them. How long ago was that with the first satellite uh, tagging stuff? Yeah, that was. I think I put the first tag in uh, two thousand. So, 2000. so it was in North Carolina. How much have things improved over since you know in the last twenty two years? Yeah, the tags have gotten smaller. The tags have gotten better. We and also there's we used to have a, a joke at University of Miami. You know, when you, when you're the pioneer, you're going to get some arrows in your back. And, you know, <laughs> we learned a lot better about um, you know what you know how long should we deploy the tags? Where should we deploy the tags? Um, you know, using the technology better. So we, we learned a lot along, we made some mistakes, but you're going to, and also we had some, you know, some shark attacks, especially at Boca Grande and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. we learned a lot about being more effective at, at tagging these animals and tracking them. Nice. Did you have anything that really stands out as like the, the, the craziest piece of data that was, that came in, like how far one went or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, one of them, well, we had them, some tracks, they moved over 2,000 miles. 2,000 I mean, miles. Yeah, from, wow. from um, you know, we're going from Mexico all the way up to Louisiana. We tagged them all the way down in 
Mexico. And uh, but one thing that really surprised me, surprised all of us, was um, when they were spawning, they would swim offshore. This was 2004, the first time we we got data back on this. So let me take a step back. The tag has. Um, has a depth sensor on it. Mm -hmm. It has a sunlight sensor. It even has a salinity sensor. Um, so in a light sensor. So we use that different pieces of the information to determine where the tag is located. We know where we tagged it, where it was recaptured. But anyway, we had fish tagged off Mexico um, and they would swim offshore and go almost 300 feet deep. So that was really wow. surprising us to think of the, you know, think of more of a, a surface dwelling animal. Mm -hmm. I mean, not so, you know, within the, spend most of your life in the first, you know, 30 meters or 30 feet at least in the, in the coast of the surface, but they would swim offshore and, and make these deep dives almost 300 feet. Oh, it was really short too. They'd make it, you know, for a couple hours and come right back up. Hmm. And we think that was related to spawning. And then, you know, about five years ago in the Bahamas, they were putting similar tags um, on bonefish and the same and spawning bonefish do the same behavior. So it was just interesting that we first discovered this on tarpon, like what are they doing? And then bonefish do it as well. They swim offshore, they make these really deep dives. Maybe they're, uh, we don't exactly know the complete reason. We have different hypotheses why they do this, but maybe it's, you know, low predation down there and high survival rate for their young. They can avoid predators, all that, but they make these really deep dives. So that was really a That's surprise to see that behavior. The first thing I would have thought of uh, would be um, ocean currents. Like somehow they know that those ocean currents at 300 feet would wash their, 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 you know, eggs yeah, and yeah. fertilized eggs to yeah. somewhere that that they yeah. somehow know that we couldn't possibly know yet. I don't know. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, listen, man, I know you've got a, a ton of, of stuff on tarpon, and I want to get to it. And we talked about it a little bit beforehand about how you know your research and what your knowledge goes all the way back to the fossil record. So let's just start from the very beginning of, of tarpon and just bring us up to speed on on what you know, what you've learned about this incredible fish. Sure, 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 sure. And this is really from me digging through the um, uh, the, the research. So I'm not really a, a fossil guy, but I've, I dug into it and talked to many of the people that did this research. And it's really fascinating. So to take a step back, so the, I'm talking about four different periods. So first period is a Jurassic period. Everyone probably knows that from Jurassic Park, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, the very famous movies. So that was about 200 to 145 million years ago. Then there's a, after that, there's a Cretaceous period, which is about 145 to 65 million years ago. And at the end of the Cretaceous period is when the meteor hit and most of the life on this planet died. And then earlier than that is a Tertiary period, which is 65 to 1.6 million years ago. And then the Quaternary period, which we're in now, um, 1.6 million years ago till today. But to go back to that, now that I explain those four periods. So tarpon first arrived in the Jurassic period. Now I need to be clear, this is the tarpon ancestors. So the first tarpon, so not, not Megalops Atlanticus, not the one that we fish for today, but mm -hmm. the tarpon ancestors first arrived in the Jurassic period, you know, swimming in the waters with T-Rex on land and, you know, very, very crazy time to be on this planet. So about 160 million years ago, the first tarpon arrived. And then you go through the Cretaceous and um, a lot of them, you know, mostly then the, the meter hits at the end of that one. Most of the, there was actually a, quite a um, diversification of tarpon in the Cretaceous period. There was actually 14 different species of tarpon wow. during that, during that time period. And their fossil record, the their hit. fossil records for all that? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So I always joke, you know, uh, you know, if you ever find a um, a hot tub time machine, you know, you want to go to the Cretaceous period because at that <laughs> time there was fourteen different species of tarpon, you know, on the on the planet then. So yeah, that's a all great you need is a, a little little boat and some horsepower and a fly rod, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, um, so then, mostly after Cretaceous period, a big meter hits. Most of the life on this planet dies. But then the the period after that, so it, roughly about twenty three million years ago, is when Megalops Atlanticus uh, arrives on this planet. So I always think of that as like, you know, when the first tarpon ancestors arrived and when Megalops Atlanticus arrived, that's 137 million years of evolution. So that's a, that's a long time, you know, to get it right, you know, and, and then, so 23 million years ago, Megalops Atlanticus shows up on this planet. Well, where were we? So humans didn't arrive to six million years ago. Wow. So they have a 17 million year jump on us, you know? So anyway, it's just, it's just fascinating. They've been, they've been on this planet for so long, wow. you know, and we're still the, the rookies on a, on this planet trying to, trying to figure it out and hope we don't destroy it, but they've right. been around a much, much longer than, than, than I mean, we true, have. Been, true dinosaurs you know? in every sense of yeah. the word. Right. Yeah. 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 The ancestors and, and, um, and it's interesting, you can, you can dig through it and, you know, different, um, they, different tarpon that survived. So they all had, and one thing that, that jumped out at me when I looked through the different fossil records and the different, um, drawings of them and, and pieces of them that they found, and they all have really large eye sockets. So I think they were even megalops today. So I think they were all visual predators much like um, tarpon is vision was such a huge part of their, of their feeding and survival. So that was one thing that was really interesting um, that they all have these giant eye sockets. <laughs> so, uh, so again, I think fly fishing worked well for them. You now, know, if you ever, from the know. fossil records, can you tell that all of those 14 species were, were kind of air breathers, kind of like our Megalops Atlanticus? You know, that, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think you can because it's only the bones. Yeah. And, um, and you'd have to have the the gut contents and all that. So, mm. and in fact, to, to point out, if you ever um, fillet a tarpon, um, which we'll go into more of the details of the um, of the air breathing, but uh, but you know, you fillet a snapper or a grouper, it's just like an air pocket, like a white air pocket, just pops. But as you talked about, yeah, their 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 swim bladder is filled with this lung like tissue that they can actually extract oxygen. So, so I don't think we could ever decide determine that. Um, but you know, looking at their their mouths, they didn't have the the upturn jaw yet that the tarpon have they had it slightly but not nearly as dramatic as megalops atlanticus so i don't think that they were air breathers yet tom <laughs> that came much much later but they had plenty of years to you know the millions of years to figure that out so <laughs> yeah yeah so from the fossil records then where do we go so now yeah good, good point so really now it comes down to where are we today so what do we have on our planet right now so now we only have two species of tarpon um, the Indo-Pacific tarpon, which is found off Australia, um, found in the Red Sea, found in the Philippines. And then, of course, Megalops Atlanticus, the one that, you know, familiar in, uh, in the U.S. and the Lank waters and primarily in, in Florida. But the real big difference there, is, to me, that jumps out at me. They had different uh, dorsal fin rays and anal fin rays, if you really want to get technical, but but size. Unfortunately, the, the Indo-Pacific tarpon only gets up to about 24 inches uh, fork length, mm. so like total. Whereas Atlantic tarpon has been found as, as far as um, you know, 90 inches fork length. Mm -hmm. So really, they don't get nearly as big as the as the tarpon that 
that we get. Now, when I was in Australia, we we fished for a fish that looked exactly like a tarpon. It was called an oxeye. They called it an oxeye herring. Yeah. Is that the same fish yeah. that you're talking about? The, yeah. the Indo-Pacific tarpon and the oxeye herring? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's in our name for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sepernoides is a scientific name, but yeah, you're talking about the same thing. Those fish yeah, look yeah. just like the tarpon. They act just like the tarpon, except that they don't they don't really spook that much. Like oh, they yeah, were, okay. yeah, okay. no, they were really aggressive. And when you would jump one out of a school, that you know now you know with our fish, that's kind of it. Maybe you get another one, but you're not going to get many more after that. That you just keep keep going like a school of Jack Cravels to just mean i mean maybe it had to do with the remoteness of the area that we were fishing but you know you can kind of see it in a fish when when they have that tendency to to just be kind of spooky like you could go and and yeah, fish yeah. for bonefish you know somewhere that they've never seen a person and you you make four or they're five casts spooky. to them and they they get pretty spooky pretty fast you know but um these fish um there they they didn't seem to spook they were really fun to fish for that's, that's so cool. You got the fish for him. I'm mm-hmm. jealous. That's uh, definitely on my bucket list. Yeah. Sometime yeah. to go. Well, that's a great place to go. Australia. If you ever, <laughs> we were on the, the Bay of Carpentaria and it's like, it's like the United States turned upside down to where the, where Florida sticks off the North. Um, okay. you know, they have okay. like a peninsula that sticks off the North of Australia called, uh, Carpentaria. And that's basically their Florida. And it's very similar in a lot of ways that as, as you go North, the vegetation looks more and more and more and more like the keys and you see more palm trees and, and, and mangroves and all that kind of stuff. And the fishing gets more and more and more like the keys as you go North. And it's very similar to Florida. Um, really cool place and no one there. I mean, it's remote. Yeah. I was going to say, does that have the crazy people like Florida to too? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, if they do, uh, it's f- few and far between. I mean, we flew over that area and I'm just looking for, anything and there's not a, a light anywhere you know i mean there just were very few wow. people there i think people go by boat but i don't think people are are really or certainly when we were there there weren't many developments or anything that people were getting to by land um you would see a little bit of boat traffic but very cool area very That's cool. cool but one but one more thing i want to point about um megalops atlanticus the atlantic tarpon is so it's found on the um you know west atlantic you know florida gulf of mexico it's also found on the east atlantic too so off africa mm-hmm. it's even been sighted off spain and portugal so you know it's on it's actually on both coasts of you know africa's west coast right and united states is east coast right and then i guess a, <laughs> so, a few are making it through the panama canal and establishing yeah kind of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah residency yeah. over on the other side there that's interesting too yeah yeah but then i was thinking you know go from species the next thing is kind of their um uh i always like to talk about their their life history mm-hmm. so so really they um not to get too technical but if you dig back in there's some of these papers back in the 70s but they looked at um tarpon and other um what's called a leptocephalus larvae so it's really an, an eel like larvae it's a really translucent clear eel about an inch to inch and a half um the thing that jumps out with um tarpon uh leptocephalus they have a, they still have a forked tail hmm. so think of like a clear eel but it does have a forked tail which which um which helps you um identify them if you find a whether ever clear eel and bonefish and ladyfish also have um that eel with the with the forked tail 
but they're but I was getting in the literature, they their first stage, so they have different stages of this leptocephalus eel, but the first stage needs to be in very stable salinity. Then when they first hatch from the egg, they they struggle to do what's called osmoregulate. So they can't deal with changes in salinity. So meaning if they spawned in Florida Bay or if they spawn in Biscayne Bay and then the tide changes, salinity changes, they would either shrink or they would explode. <laughs> so they just can't deal with that change in, in salinity. So they move offshore to these places with very stable salinity. So like they've been, there's four different spots that de- defined as their, um, their spawning locations, but that doesn't mean that there's only four. I think there's many more, just people haven't discovered them yet or, or uh, talked about them in the literature. So there's many more, but anyway, in those four spots, there's like off of, um, like for example, um, about 120 miles off where I am right now, I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida, about 120 miles west of me is where they've been spawning and you get real stable salinity when you get out there. But in the Keys, it's only like 10 to 15 miles out because you get that Gulf Stream. So you get a very stable salinity. So they don't need to go that far off of there. But they they first move offshore, they do that spawning, then they they form that leptocephalus larvae, that eel larvae, which is an excellent swimmer, can cover a long distance and they can stay in that phase for many months, like one to six months. (laughs) And then they migrate into the... um, the coastal bays, and then they really try to look for really, you know, like oxygen poor, um, stagnant canals, stagnant creeks, and stuff like that. Because it gives them a big advantage that we talked about. They can they can air breathe, so they can go in there where the you know the sharks can follow them, and and they can thrive off there. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops. Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, and survive off other um, fish that can survive off low oxygen, such as um, guppies and killifish and mullet. So they're in there as well. So they have a, um, a prey source with, with low predation. So they, they go way back in those creeks and all that. They can air breathe and hide back there. And they spend the first three, three years of their life back in there. And then after three years, they're about, about 25 inches fork length. Ooh. Then they start to spread out and move to a, a variety of different habitats. Um, you know, lead those creeks and or find other creeks or find ones that maybe not as stagnant and, and low oxygen as those. And um, and then when they get to about eight years old, then they that's about, about 40 inches fork length. Then they become section mature and start forming, forming you know, you see the groups you see down in the Keys on the ocean side and, and hang on the bridges and stuff like that and, 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 and move offshore. And, but what's interesting is their, their vision is also tied to these, to this behavior as well. So like, for example, um, when they're really young, they're, um, 
they're in that those stagnant stagnant canals and um it's really like a dark green water mm-hmm. so oh, i need to take a step back to, to help your audience understand so so their fish vision is different than our vision they can coat they can change the cars that they're the primary cars that they focus on that they see can change throughout their life mm-hmm. which is they actually have stem cells in their eyes so they can regenerate if their if their eyes are damaged um to some degree i mean if you know not dramatic but um and their their color vision changes throughout their life whereas whereas different than ours right i think after like six months our vision is is our vision it only at least i'm finding out now it only gets worse with time not better but meaning our our color change our color vision is fixed you know and we actually see primary uh, the primary colors of red, green, and blue. And then the other colors we see are kind of a mix of those three. So to go back to the tarpon, so their, their color vision changes throughout their life. So when they're back in those canals and those creeks and all that, they really see primarily green colors and blue. Those are the, the primary colors that they see. And then when they get to older, because also I want to point out, the, in those little creeks, green color is very, very abundant back there. So that's why they, they see it very well. They, they do see different shades of green, but green is very common in those stagnant creeks that they're mm-hmm. in. And then when they get to about eight years old and 40 inches fork length, become those adult tarpon, they migrate out and they move to those oceanside areas. So then they actually have five primary colors when they get to that size and that age. So it's really green, different shades of blue, two different shades of blue purple and the the fifth one is uv light now we don't uv is a little hard to understand we don't see uv light i think of it as like a deep 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 purple <laughs> but we we humans can't see it so and the reason they they developed that is because when they become adults and they move to those offshore areas that that uv light is very very abundant so and and there's different um discussions in the literature like why do certain fish see uv light some of the um reasons are you know there's certain reef fish that you know they can reflect uv light so maybe like fish that can see like tarpon can see them they can they can feed off those fish hmm. but here's here's what what i think is this is my opinion why i think they see uv light so let's say you know you're fishing on the ocean side and and there's a tarpon coming that tarpon you know they, there's this uv light everywhere that clear mm-hmm. keys water is everywhere so now there's a there's a crab in front of it or you're fly in front of it right so so everything is uv light except for that silhouette of that tiny crab mm. or that tiny flab i'm sorry tiny fly excuse me so so really i think it helps them you know feed on those tiny crabs when they're feeding in the passes or luckily you know helps them see our, our fly when we cast it in front of them it provides a silhouette because everything around it is UV light. Hmm. So, so I think that really helps them. See. So would that make the, make it actually somehow more difficult for them to see in the daytime? And then when that UV light disappears and you, in the nighttime, you know, a tarpon is such an efficient predator at night. And like, if you ever go to Key West Harbor at night or Long Key Bridge or any of these places, it just sounds like a bomb, bombs going off. Boom, 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 yeah, boom, yeah, boom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're eating everywhere. And a lot of times it's when, when it's really dark outside, I mean, they're not, I mean, sometimes you're thinking, okay, well, they're seeing a a silhouette of a crab with the, with the moon. Right. But other times it's just really dark and, and they're just crashing stuff everywhere. They've got obviously see really well at night. 
Oh yeah, yeah. You bring up an excellent point. So that was really um, daytime, but they have yeah, you're right. They have incredible low light and nighttime vision, and we know that because of all the the high density rod cells, those mm-hmm. high, light detecting rod cells. They're very dense in their in their eyes. So um, they also have that um, what's called like uh, that tape to them, like that reflective tape. Like you ever mm-hmm. see them at night and you shine a light, their eyes yeah, glow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right when you shine. So really, it, it maximizes the light going through and back. So it's like a reflective barrier. So it maximizes the light that they capture <laughs> in their eye. And so they're 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 really, in fact, I mean, they're excellent vision, but they're really primarily from that from that, you know, from those light detecting cells is primary nighttime feeders. <laughs> I mean, it, they can see so well in low light and in, in nighttime. And and another thing is, if you like, you probably have it in QS, but when I was in in Miami, you know, you look off, you look off the the bridges at night, and there's always lights on the bridge. And you look down, and those tarpon are right in that shadow line, right in that dark mm-hmm. area. Or there were some areas in Biscayne Bay um, where they were hanging out right in the shadow of the mangroves. So they're they're hanging out there, and really, in those low light conditions, tarpon can see the prey better than the prey can see them. I right. mean, their eyes are so good at that low light condition, so they really thrive in that those shadow lines. Right. Whether from the mangrove or from hiding from the lights. I always thought so about that, like time. like us wearing a hat. Like you know, the sun's coming down, and you can see okay. If but if you block that out with your hand or with a hat, or you know, you put your hand over the sun, you can see so much better. And so they they like you, you'll see them like the bridge will make a a shadow line, and they'll be lined up right on that shadow line. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, they get, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. obviously yeah. an advantage for them in some way, but it might also just be, make them more comfortable. Now, before we move on from the vision, um, so you talked about how we know that they can see really well at, at night by the, by the density of the, of the rod cone rods and cones in their eyes. But how do we know like what colors the tiny tarpon can see and what colors a 40 inch tarpon can see? How, how do you determine that? They're really from, from analyzing those, those cone cells mm-hmm. that they extract from, from the eyes. So the guy that did this work, Scott Taylor. So I would actually, um, I would provide him. We had some, unfortunately some tarpon that died from, um, shark attacks and so forth. And I gave him bonefish and, and tarpon eyes and I would have to remove them. So he would actually get the eyeball, he'd fix it in a certain solution and he would actually extract the cone cells. And from there, he could actually detail, he could analyze those cone cells to see what color they were, um, they were specific hmm. to. So, so why are our baby tarpon flies and mid sized tarpon flies and big tarpon flies, why are they all a million different colors? Um, because <laughs> it seems like they can only see certain colors. We ought to rethink this a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And but you know, it is interesting though. Before this research, but another side of that is before this research came out, I think it came out in like two thousand nine when it was published. And I, I really doubt all the guides are either following this or or reading all this literature. Um, but if you look, I remember looking at fly boxes like back in the two thousands and seeing those chartreuse colors mm-hmm. and seeing those blue and seeing those purples. So it it kind of made me, you know, this is before the research was done. So I think a lot of guides have keyed in on it. Um, but you know what, a lot of it is, 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 I know, you know, like a lot of it, you know, where you put the fly and how you move it. And Yeah. But and, I mean, um, you can, you can have a great angler that can put it where it needs to be. And you do that over and yeah. over and over again. And then you change the fly and boom, they, they eat it and they see it. And there's this definite reaction. Like, I don't know what's different about that, but that worked. 
So we're sticking with that for a while. And then you stick with that for a little while. And the next thing you, and you think, oh, we got this thing wired, right? Like every fish is going to, maybe the next two fish just kill it. But then maybe something changes. Maybe it's the UV light that we can't detect and they're not interested in that anymore. You know, and it's just, yeah. it's just a very strange thing that keeps you going back, I guess. But, but the, you know, the, the, the guys that, that kind of gravitate towards the chartreuse, I mean, you know, chartreuse is a, is a color that we've been using in fishing for ever, right? Like that's, that's like a fishing color. So yeah. eventually yeah. you're going to start tying some flies out of it. You're going to start using chartreuse. It's one of your go-to colors. If you grew up bass fishing or anything like that, that's, that's one of your go-to colors. So you throw it out there and it works. I mean, you don't really need to know that they have cones in their eyes that are, that are, that, that see this well. It's like, I don't, I don't really care that, works right but now what what's interesting is is looking at this from a scientific basis and saying okay well that seems to make sense that that they like chartreuse because of these rods and cones that you've been able to determine what other colors do they see like that that's what that's what i'd be wondering right now like hmm like is there something else like purples have you mentioned purple purple and black yeah. have always been yeah, a good, ones see, good color yeah purple see mm-hmm. see purple very well in the blues and you know one thing i like too about the, the non-scientific thing but I, I like chartreuse but i like it because i see it too yeah right me i mean i yeah. can i can see where the fly is so that's a big advantage too i mm-hmm. feel like i know where it is you know i see so orange even better with- like in, in particular when you're when we're barracuda fishing and you have those longer chartreuse flies and it's really important to see where the fly is in relation to the, where the fish is. But I determined a while back that I can see orange better than I can see chartreuse. And it seems like a barracuda, like both of them. So I started tying my flies in orange just so I could see the fly better. Um, just me personally, but some people see oh, gotcha. chartreuse better. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> but you know, they want to point out with the, with the vision is they have. So I remember when I provided Scott, these eyes, I would put them, I'd, uh, I'd actually put a marker on it, put a marker on the bottom of it. So when he analyzed it, he knew, um, okay, where's the top of the eye? Where's the front of the, where was the, you know, where was the, the right, uh, where was the left? So he would know hmm. exactly where these density cells, whether the rods or the cones were located. And one thing he, he found was that um, they really have excellent vision um, up in front of them. And so directly in front of them, whereas you find um, when we get into other species like ladyfish and bonefish, they can see more, around them better but tarpon their best vision is directly in front of them and slightly above and i think a lot of it relates because they're um some of the literature calls it a, a suction strike like when they they heat you know they they open up they they flare out their gills they suck in water they 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 feed like directly in front of them so i think um what and that relates to you know what their vision is as well as their their mouth morphology too right like they're mm-hmm. not sucking on the bottom mm-hmm. you know so i always joke you know like when i was reading that like you know i mean i'm sure you've yelled at people you know put the fly in front of the fish <laughs> right and <Yeah. laughs> well it, it's true i mean actually that's where their best vision is too but i'm sure you've heard that or, or said that i've heard that people tell me that as well but with tarpon that certainly is the case and they can their best see vision is directly in front directly of in front of them and above them, even out of the water. And you see that, like if you're at Hawks K or Robbie's or whatever, and you, you, you move your hand, like you're going to throw something and all the fish oh, are yeah, like, yeah. they're like yeah. a dog. Like, you know, they like, like look like expecting you to, to do it. Jack Cravel can see them even better, I think. But um, yeah, it's amazing how they can see out of the water. Yeah. 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 True. True. 
and, and then also a point when they when they do feed just to relate to that suction strike thing they have um if you ever open their mouth they actually have two plates on the roof of their mouth and then the tongue so they actually crush a crab with those with their tongue and the plates on the roof of their mouth and bonefish do this as well but bonefish have actually little teeth there but tarpon have plates there mm. so Anyway, but you know, that plate, you know, as you know, it's difficult to set the hook because right. you're just hitting a plate, you right. know, you're not hitting tissue. So, but that, you know, adds to the, the challenge of tarpon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. So what about, um, the lifespan? Like we were talking about, um, the life, is that where you go from here? I don't want to interrupt your, your flow. No, no, that's, no, that's, that's great. So, um, so it is interesting. Yeah. How, how long do they live? So, and tarpon are a real difficult to age. I worked on it years ago. Because um, even though for their large animal, their otolith is really not that big. Mm. And it's relative and the to their size. Is like the bone in their ear, right? That you can age yeah, like yeah, a tree. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's I'm cool. Sorry. I just want to yeah. make sure that people are following what we're talking about. Yeah, I always assume, like, you don't know what an otolith is? But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bone in the ear. And you um, uh, you take it out of their skull. And to take a step back, it's really... Um, it really helps with their hearing too. Otolith is like a, like a, like a, like a dinner plate surrounded by nerves. Hmm. So, and when those, when those vibrations hit the, hit the skull, now they're, you know, us, you know, we live in a very different density. We live in air, right? Well, they mm -hmm. live in very dense water and their body is a very similar density to the water that they live in. So those vibrations will actually enter the skull and it'll, it'll move that dinner plate, which is the otolith, which is surrounded by nerves. So if it, you know, it shakes it a lot, it was a loud noise. If it shakes it a little bit, it was a low noise. And otolith also helps them with orientation too. Like when the otolith is resting on the top, the fish knows it's upside down. But there's some interesting facts I like to mm. point out about otoliths. But they, they actually deposit, they're constantly deposit depositing um, calcium carbonate onto this, this otolith. And, it, and people have used this to their benefit. They can actually see what, in other um, elements as well, they can use that to see, you know, what's being deposited on the otolith and, and you know, where were these fish? Were they in the bay? Were they uh, hmm. offshore? But anyway, um, for, for that size of a fish, they have a very small otolith. Like a bonefish otolith is fairly large for its size. So when you cut it open, what you have to do, you have to cut it open down the core and put it in a microscope and read the read these lines and what you're what you're really counting is winters so how many winters has this fish been alive because in the winter their their growth slows down and they get this tiny little band now that tarpon migrate so it makes it difficult like even mm. though you know they they do you know they, they migrate they they follow these these temperature profiles up and down the coast so they don't really experience that they're like snowbirds so mm. you know in the, in the summer they go north and then when it gets cold they move they move south so those bands are really they're not really that defined but anyway there was some aging growth work the point i'm getting to is they're difficult to read so um they found them to be about 50 to 60 years old uh, from reading the bands but then what's really neat is that some um, some chem chemists grabbed the otoliths and did a different type of analysis. Mm. So you can actually see how these these chemicals, the, the radium inside the otoliths, when it decays to lead, it decays at a constant rate. But anyway, what I'm getting at is you can use look at that decay rate and see how much it's decayed at the at the core when the when the tarpon first was was hatched from the egg. And then you can determine the age to see the decay rate. But that analysis showed that they live up to 78 years old. 78 so, years. Wow. Yeah. So it's really, I mean, I always, you know, my, my kids have 
hooked a couple. They haven't caught any, but I'm like, that fish is older than you. That <laughs> fish that you just caught, you know, and I'm sure I've caught tarpon that are older than me. For sure. You know, so they can I live mean, up to let's, 78 Let's talk about old. that. Like a full grown fish would be 78 years old now. Is that one that we've, we've actually aged a 78 year old? Yeah. Okay. So yes. And, yeah. and did that yeah. come out of the wild or out of an aquarium or, or where does that come from? That came from the Florida Keys. From the Florida Keys. So that's like a, <laughs> yeah, rec- yeah, a record yeah. fish or, or one that died yeah, somehow in, the a, wild. In, a, in a tournament or something from the wild. Okay. So what, like the fish that, that, you know, you see predominantly migrating through the Florida Keys are anywhere from 60 pounds to a hundred pounds, right? So that's your typical migrator. I would, I would think on the ocean side later in the season, they get a little smaller, but a fish like that, let's, let's just say for, for, for good measure a hundred pound fish how yeah, old I'm is a hundred pound fish i'm actually cheating right now because i have <laughs> a um a chart in front of me on my on my computer because oh, you really, can share it if you want <laughs> well there's a lot of variability yeah actually let me um let me sh- i can share that real quick because there's some interesting facts about this here hold on a second here so here's Hopefully you can you can yeah, see this now. I'm sharing it. my screen here. Mm-hmm. So this is tarpon growth. So on the x-axis is is age and in both figures, but on the um, the y-axis on the top figure is fork length, and then the y-axis on the bottom figure is weight in pounds. So but what's in what's interesting too is so I'm gonna put that that hundred pound line that you just talked about, Tom. So mm-hmm. so I also need to point out so um, the males is the blue. And the girls are green. So when you say 100 pound, what's interesting first is that, first of all, males rarely get over 100 pounds. Hmm. In fact, this is a sample of over 300 fish. There's one blue diamond in here. They rarely get over 100 pounds. And the reason for that is they don't, they're, they're, you know, males are more interested in, in, you know, the sperm doesn't take up a lot of space, but they're, you know, the, for them to be reproductive successful, they just need to spawn as many times as, as possible. Whereas the females, you know, they have the eggs. So think of eggs as, as marbles. So they want to have the biggest cavity you can. So meaning if you have a, a coffee cup, you can hold, you know, let's say a, a hundred marbles, but you have a bucket, mm-hmm. you know, you can hold like 2000 marbles. So, so the, benefit for reproductive success for the females is to have a larger cavity is to be larger. So in the case of tarpon, the, those larger fish, like that 78 year old fish, that was, that was a, that was a, um, a female. So, so females are larger. So hundred males don't get that big. They rarely get over hundred pounds. I mean, it really looks like but from the data of, you're looking at there, the blue really stops at like 80. Yes. Like, like, yes. I mean, exactly. you're seeing a yeah. few fish yeah. over 80, between 80 and 100, a little outlier over 100. But for the most part, the, the primary data is 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 really 45, maybe 50 pounds to 80 pounds is where this chart, if you're not watching this on, on a video, you he, he's got a couple of charts. One is age and, and the other is tarpon growth. The blue represents the the male fish and the green on this represents the female fish and the, the larger fish are predominantly female, like majorly, I mean, almost, almost none. So this data that, that we're looking mm-hmm. at here, where these are all tagged fish or, or, or these are, fi- fish that it, died. These are, I'm, I'm sorry. So they're all wild. These are all dead fish. Okay. So my name from, from taxidermists, from tournaments okay. where they, had, they killed the fish or removed the old ones from its, right. from its skull. Right. right. So, with threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Okay, cool. So, and then, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just, just going to point out real quick, there's also a lot of variability, too. Like, those lines are really the, the curve, the, the best fit to this data. Like, what's the best fit for the males? What's the best fit, best fit for mm-hmm. the Mm-hmm. For the the green one is best for for the females, but you know it's just like if you would go to like like my son's eighth grade middle school class. If you took a a, a measurement of length, you know they all may be thirteen, right? But there's a lot of difference in ages, sure. so there's always some variability, you know, in the in it. So the the curve is this kind of way to visualize where where's the most likely a given given a certain age. What's the most likely weight? That's what that the blue curve and the lines in this figure, That's the green line and the blue line. You know. One 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 thing before we move on, how has it affected the the data collection that we almost don't kill any fish anymore? Um, like in the in the past, I don't know when when all of this data was was collected, but it was very common to to kill a fish and take it to the taxidermy. It was very common to kill them in tournaments. It was very common just to kill them and hang them up on a on a on a nail at some point. And then the laws change, and then the kind of the the ethos changes. And we don't really do that anymore. It's very rare to see see that happen. Incredibly rare. So, how does that affect science? And and yeah, you, yeah. No, you're you're exactly right. So, if you're doing this today, you know, it'd be very very difficult because back then, you're right. When they did this in the '90s and and or even before that, when they collected the database, you know, they had dead fish from from um, the FWC uh, tagging program where they, you know, you had to have a tag to, to kill a tarpon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They would collect those photos from those fish as well as taxidermy. But you're right today. I mean, as well, hopefully, I don't even think that they get many of those tagged fish from the, um, the FWC tag program. So it would be very difficult. Well, good to, thing to we have today, this data though. Sample size. I mean, yeah, because like, you know, it seems like today you're like, Oh no, there's no reason to kill a tarpon, but it, we, we know so much from, from these tarpon that were collected at some point that there was good yeah. that came from it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And it's quick story. I was doing a similar thing with bonefish and it was very difficult because back in the, you know, the two thousands, but, um, we'll get into the, when we talk about the bonefish one, but, but then I had this like overwhelming thing with the, the cold kill where I had like 200 bonefish within a week. But anyway, yeah. that's another story for another time. But you're right. It is very difficult for being a catch and release fish. Like if you're doing this for snapper, right? You could go mm-hmm. to the dock and sure. just sit there all day and collect otoliths. But you're right. For tarpon, it is very, okay. very, very difficult. Cool. So let's go back to um, the the um, the difference between the male and female. The females are obviously getting bigger. The males are are staying smaller, um, but the age is relatively the same. Um, they can both live really long time. Males yeah, and females. Yeah, I'm not sharing my screen anymore, right? No. You got the screen? Yep. Okay. okay. 
But you're right. You're right. But even um, the females seem to get a little bit older too. You know, I mean, the males don't seem to be living as long. Just from from the sample size we have, looks like the oldest males are around in the forties, whereas the females we talked about getting the fifties, six, seventies. So they do seem to have a um, not only are the males um, smaller, but they also um, don't seem to be living as long. Do Do you have any data on whether there are more males than females? Is it Is it like they is it a strategy of the species to have have more breeding females or more males? Like you see that sometimes with like deer populations or, or other things, and and people try to try to get rid of some of the you know of one species. You have too many or something to uh, you know in a management kind of situation. But I wonder if we know anything about that with tarpon. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't. I don't know of any. Um, because don't know if there is more or more females and males or something like that sex ratio. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and to really do that, you'd have to like find a school and net them and then mm-hmm. look at the sex ratio. Cause, cause this data is, is biased, especially um, coming from taxidermists, right? Like what are you going to bring in a taxidermy? You know, you're going to bring the biggest fish that you right, can. Right. Right. So therefore you're bringing in females. Right. So now they, they did try to, you know, sample, um, FWC actually collected this data and they did their best to sample different ages. But when you are still getting supplementary data from, from taxidermies and so forth, there is a bias there. Right. And so you're definitely getting more females. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't know the answer is there are males, more yeah. males than females. I'm assuming they're kind of equally distributed, but to answer that question, you'd have to really net a whole school and net a whole bunch of them and right. then sex every single how one. How do you, how do you so. sex a tarpon? Can you sex a tarpon and then release it or, or is that something that you have to kill it? There are some some agriculture techniques where you can actually you can flip it over and um, essentially shove a needle up its up its up its anus and, and take a sample there, hmm. you know. But really, but I don't obviously I don't recommend that for anyone. But <laughs> but anyway, but really, uh, no. Unless um, it releases a white milt, then you know it's a male, right? You know, if you're if you're picking or it's next to a boat, I mean, I, I don't recommend ever. ever picking a big tarpon out of the water but um but if it, yeah we used to have white milt on your boat or somewhere yeah. near then well, you we used to you we used mail. to pick them up you know all the all the time that was just the kind of the thing thing that you did before we knew what we know now and you would see that you'd be like whoa like this is a family show here we're gonna need to get some different kind of pictures <laughs> like, but you'd see that with other fish too like uh you could see see it with with a lot of different it. fish um yeah yeah so i don't know where you go from here but obviously one of the things that i'm most interested in is is what we know about the migration and and where these fish go how far they go like what do you know about that because that's that's the big mystery like they're all here yeah. and then they're gone and then they're none. And then all of a sudden here they are. And it's, it's one of the great mysteries. Like when they're not there, where are they? And yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll get into that. Cause we had some real fascinating results. So again, to remind the, the audience. So these data loggers, and we call them a satellite tag, but when the fish is underwater, it's, it's essentially, it's just recording data. Um, it's not actually when it's underwater 20 feet, it's not telling us where it is um, because that big body of water is blocking the signal. So what, but what happens is, you know, where you tag the fish and you know where it were captured. And then when it, when it pops off, we actually would go get it because when it pops off, it sends data to a satellite, mm-hmm. but sometimes that gets pretty choppy. We get bad reception or whatever. So we would actually go out, collect it and download it. But then you get this data logger, which has, um, you know, the, you know, where you tagged it, 
birds are captured as a light level sensor. From light level, you can determine where you are, you know, are you north up in Cape Cod or are you down south off Cuba? Hmm. You know, from the from that sunrise and sunset, you can they get it so it gives you a rough estimate, a rough estimate. So it also has um uh, a sonometer measures the salinity. So, you know, was it offshore? Was it way back in um, in the bay? In fact, I, I don't mean to brag, but my, one of my colleagues, Jing Yang Liu, he discovered that. It really has a, a connectivity sensor on it that can be used to measure if the tag is on land or not. It, if it's automatic on land, it starts sending data. But Jing Yang dug into that, um, that sensor a little more and found out we can use this to measure salinity. Wow. So anyway, it has white, white, sen- white level um, a temperature gauge, you know, the temperature, a depth sensor and salinity. So you use all that information to find out where it's located. Like if it's in, you know, 40 feet of water, you know, it's not in Florida Bay, mm-hmm. you know, so you can really use all those different pieces of information, the temperature and the salinity. We can, oh, there's water. Why, why we, in the there. day and age of GPS, why wouldn't it just have a, why wouldn't it be able to be located by latitude and longitude? Well, there is um, for those we call it a spot tag. So, meaning when the fish rolls, then it can send a signal okay. to right. to the side. But they do tell, but but the the early ones that we used, you know, they're they're underwater, so mm-hmm. they you know the water blocks. Right, the right, right. So, what would what would cause one of these tags to to detach from the tarpon? Is it is it on a time basis? It's going to decay, like whatever the 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 mechanism to hold it in there is going yeah, to yeah, decay yeah, yeah. and break off at a certain kind of like we want it to be there for a year or, wh- or whatever um and they're yeah, kind yeah, of designed yeah, yeah. to to fall off at that p- period of time exactly yeah it'll, it'll actually we'll tell it okay we want it to pop off like august 25th in 2022 and then it'll actually we'll send a, a charge that there's a pin in it Excuse me. There's a pin in it, and it'll send a, a signal to that pin, and it'll actually corrode. And within about ten minutes, it'll break off. Wow. So there's also um, a sensor on it, like meaning you can program it. Like if it's if it's sitting on the bottom and the depth doesn't change, you know, for more than four days, then go ahead and activate that signal because it's essentially you know like a dead fish at the bottom mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. So what if it's in anyway, the belly the, of a of a hammerhead shark? <laughs> that's a that's a great question so we we had one um that uh it was actually boca grand which probably doesn't surprise many people on here but anyway um we tagged the fish up boca grand and then um you know we, we it it popped up early like it is only on there for about two months that was only like a, a month and it popped up and it showed the data was fascinating because it had depth changes so it was changing depth um the salinity was like fixed but the light sensor, it was completely dark mm. for about a about a week. So I'm like, how could you know? How could you find a spot in the wild that is completely dark? And then we looked at it, and there was scars on it. So really, what it came down to, it was in the belly of a probably a hammerhead mm-hmm. for about a week, and then the shark threw it up. So wow. it was just interesting that it, you know, the light sensor was zero, and then all of a sudden it. It, then all of a sudden everything, you know, and the depth will change because, you know, the shark is going down deep, the shark is going back up. And, so and that that's not something that you find on a regular basis? That, that just happened kind of once or? Yeah, it was about um, about 10% of those would um, had issues. Uh, it was a lot higher percentage at the beginning right. when we first started. But, um, but yeah, I mean, unfortunately there are, and these are fish, you know, like even we had one off, um, you know, off Amarada with a channel five or something, but you know, you see the fish swim away, you're watching it, you know, for, you know, a good 20 minutes to half an hour. And okay. I mean, maybe not that long ago, but you try to follow it as, as long as you can, but then, and then you find out, okay. But then two days later it got sharked, you right. know? So, and you know this because the tags all chewed up or, 
you can definitely see some evidence. And we work with some guys at University of Tampa that would analyze the marks. They can even tell us, oh, that was a bull shark by the mm. marks on the tag. Wow. That was a hammerhead. So, so unfortunately, you do get some some shark attacks. But but to go back to the now that I explained, you know, how you get that data. So so really, we we tagged all over from North Carolina, a lot in the Keys, because I mean we were at University of Miami, so that's you know it's close by, it's easy to drive to, uh, Texas. Mexico and try to summarize some, some facts from the, from the satellite tagging. So we had, yeah, we've had some fish that can travel over 2000 miles, you know, not in a day, obviously, but mm-hmm. throughout their, their migration. So that 2000 miles was Mexico to Louisiana. Is that the one, one you referenced yes. earlier? Okay. Yeah. 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 And some also went, um, uh, 20 miles in a, in a single day. And, um, what we found is that, um, you know, snowbirds, so they would, they would migrate, you know, we tag them in the keys. We had some fish go all the way up to Chesapeake Bay, you know, that far North. So like, as, and they would follow that at 79 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, temperature. Hmm. So, so they, they water moved, temperature, moved right? Up north. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Water, now, water temperature. temperature at what depth? Are they following? Can, are you able to tell that? Like they want seventy nine degrees, but are they willing to be at you know a hundred feet to get that, or do they want to be up close to the surface or what? Yeah. Well, most of the depths were within. Uh, it was like thirty. 30 feet or less. They've spent most of their time in 30 feet or less from the surface. So the depth did, did change some, but it, and it would go up cause they would roll, especially at night, they'd go up and down, mm-hmm. but they really went beyond that, that 30 feet. So they would stay in that top 30 feet of the, of the water column there. But one thing I thought was really interesting, which I think needs more study, but like, so we tagged them on the West coast of, of um, the Gulf of Mexico, so Mexico and Texas, and we tagged them on the east coast of the Gulf of Mexico, so West Florida, the Keys. So for some reason, the all the fish we tagged, Louisiana is like um like a um like a temporary boundary, like um not a real boundary, like a wall or anything like that, but meaning like the the fish on the west coast, the Mexico and Texas seem to be its own stock. Like they would they would move up to Louisiana and then move back to Mexico. They wouldn't cross over, meaning a Mexico fish wouldn't cross Louisiana and go all the way to Florida. Huh. And then the Florida fish would move, go up to to Louisiana. I'm sure they all mix off there. There's a Mississippi River. There's a lot of bait fish and stuff like that. But there was like like two stocks of fish there, like two separate subpopulations, which is what we found. I'd like to see that further analyzed, but meaning the West coast would stay with the West coast tarpon and the East coast would stay with the East coast. Like we never had a tarpon that went from Florida, went all the way over to Texas. Wow. And we never had a Texas tarpon that went all the way over to Florida. So they seem to like, they move up to Louisiana, they mix there and then they go back. That's so crazy. Fish goes from, Cause the, the, so yeah, the, 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 I just did this thing with the FIU, um, scientists there and they're doing this thing on Jack Crevel and the one Jack Crevel that they found that went the furthest went from the Florida Keys to Louisiana. And I wonder if they're going to find the same thing, like that yeah. they're starting yeah, to, yeah, ta- yeah. to tag yeah. in Texas. And I wonder if those Texas fish go to Louisiana and then go back to Texas. I wonder if Louisiana is not, and it's just, it would make, it would make some sense because that's the largest river in, in the country. It dumps right into the ocean right there. That amazing things happen there. Like, it would make sense that yeah. that would be yeah, a migratory yeah, yeah. place to go and then back, back down. I don't know. Why do they roll? Why, what do you know about that? So really, um, so tarpon, um, if, if so you ever, you ever, you know, foia grouper snapper, you know, that swim bladder is just like a, a, a white 
balloon mm-hmm. and it just pops. But tarpon is different. If you ever fly, well, hopefully, you know, if you ever, I know people don't like <laughs> flying, but you ever have a shark attack one or something, you know, um, if you look at the, the insides, well, first of all, it's fascinating They're They have this webbing material in there. So they're really, you know, for them, they're just, they can handle it when they jump. Their organs aren't flying around. They have some webbing material to secure their um, their <laughs> organs in the inside. But then when you go to the swim bladder, if you cut it open, it has this lung-like, alveoli-like material in it. So they can actually, they can swallow air, they can breathe it in, swallow it, and it goes to their um, swim bladder. And then from there, they can distribute that to their body. And actually, and I have some... Um, when, when you do flam, I, I flayed some over the years looking at research. They have some special arteries that can actually distribute that 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 oxygen from that swim bladder throughout their body. So, but really, you ask, like, you know, like, can you see that it that it specifically goes to their brain, like like up towards their head area? It actually it distributes it throughout throughout their body, throughout their um like their, their the muscles, bloodstream. throughout their tail, which was critical to us because when we tag tarpon, because I mean, you know, we're learning as we go, like you tag a tarpon and it starts bleeding, like you can't believe. I'm like, what what's going on here? And then when we started, then I filleted one, I caught a baby one and 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 sacrificed it, and I could see where these arteries are located. So really, when you go to put a satellite tag in a tarpon, it has to be in a specific spot because you don't want to hit those arteries. Mm. So that's really how we discover. And where 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 do you answer. tag them? Where where is the place so to like tag them? Right. So right uh, in front of the the very front of the dorsal fin, right down there. So and if where you go would the in place? Front of the dorsal fin, where would it be not to tag them? Where where are those where the, where are those capillaries or 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 what what did yeah, you? Yeah yeah yeah. So you don't want to go in too far in front of the dorsal fin because there's actually a, like a, an artery that runs right along the top. It's only about two to three inches from the top, depending on the size of fish. And then it, so it actually kind of like loop goes up a little bit. The artery follows. And then um, I can even show you, I have a picture, but it's kind of gory. But anyway, um, you can actually follow it. It goes up around the dorsal fin and then back down. So really right where that dorsal fin starts is really when you want to tag it. You don't want to go too far in front of it or too far in back of it because <laughs> you um, run the risk of, you know, hitting that artery and, and, um, and then you, you have a lower chance of survival rate. That's super so interesting. Be That'd be like somebody catching us and hitting us right in the femoral artery and here we're going to just yeah. watch where you go yeah. gee thanks i'm bleeding out man. like that's yeah, a terrible yeah, yeah. place to put that can you put it anywhere else um one, one thing that you mentioned is that they have a webbing that's holding their 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 internal organs, organs in yeah. which makes yeah. them able to jump and be acrobatic like that there are other fish that are acrobatic kind of like a tarp and not quite to the to the level of a tarpon but is that something that that is common with fish that jump like the, the yeah. that type yeah, of yeah, webbing yeah. thing what is that called do you know what that is i've seen it in, i could yeah it's a good question i'm sure there is a scientific name for it i'll just call it webbing but i um i was on a boat one time that caught a marlin and we we're in in, in Baham, i'm sorry we're mexico and um and uh, and they wanted to eat it so mm-hmm. i remember seeing the exact same webbing really? um in the in the abdomen of of the marlin so That's really it's basically cool. so you know when you jump out of the water so it's the organs are secure. They're not like hitting against, you know, the right and the left and all that. So they're actually quite secure. So I would, I would argue that I haven't done that looked at all um, fish that jump, but I would think that they all have some type of webbing in there to mm-hmm. secure their organs. Mm-hmm. So they don't get any internal damage, right? When they're yeah. nuts. Interesting. Out of, out of the water. Because they're obviously using that. I mean, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be something that they evolved to have because of fishing pressure. They're, they're obviously jumping 
you know, while they're eating, they're jumping. That's, that's something that they're doing on a regular occasion. You'll see free jumping tarpon. You'll see free jumping marlin, free jumping sailfish. You'll see free jumps yeah. out, out yeah, there yeah, when, yeah. When, in the, when it's happening. So that's, that's something that they have. And then I guess when they feel a hook or whatever, they're going to go to jump because I don't know, that's what they do. Kind of like a mullet. Yeah. I think it's know? like a, like a stress response and, yeah. and, um, I think it can give them advantage too, right? Um, it like, also um, works. <laughs> like it works pretty well. They often they often get get away. <laughs> but it's all. I remember my 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 son hooked his first tarpon, and my daughter was right next to us, and it jumped, and it just scared it. it it's completely scared. It. It's such a fascinating thing, you know. See this big tarpon jump out of the water. Like it, it just adds to the tarpon fishing experience, right? Yeah. 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 So we were talking about rolling. Did you finish what you were talking yeah, so about rolling? I, I didn't. I'm sorry. I always go off on a tangent, but so, so, so why do they roll? Right. So tarpon can breathe two ways. The gills is really the, the primary method they're going to use throughout their life for breathing, but they also have that lung like sunbiter. So there's some fascinating research done back in the seventies of all time when they looked at, you know, why do they, why do they roll? And they found there's three variables why they roll. So one, low oxygen levels like they go back in those stagnant canals and all that but you can use that so i'm sorry i'll go make the three ways low oxygen levels to adjust their buoyancy they'll actually swallow it and use it to either add air or, or you know remove air from their their, their their abdomen and also imitation of of they imitate each other <laughs> so the first level you know low oxygen levels you know that's a huge advantage they go back in those stagnant creeks and avoid predation from sharks and everything and go those real those areas with um there's plenty of other fish for them to eat like mullet can survive in real low oxygens and guppies and killifish so they get prey in there um but another thing is um you ever you know you ever notice like they they, they roll more in the morning than yes. in the rest of the day, mm -hmm. because um, at nighttime, you know, the sun's down, right? So photosynthesis stops. So they actually, from our tagging data, they roll a lot at nighttime because the oxygen level has gone down. There's no photosynthesis going on. So then in the, in the morning, you know, the sun's up, but they're rolling, but the, you know, photosynthesis hasn't kicked in yet. The oxygen level is still low. Wow. So they roll a lot, but then eventually photosynthesis kicks in and all the oxygen starts being generated in the, in yeah. the water. So, that way so to a tarpon, to, to a tarpon, would that, would that feel like, like, you know, if you're in a real stuffy room or something and somebody opens the door and you get all that fresh air, like, would that be kind of what that would feel like? Like all of a sudden you can breathe and you don't have to roll. And because that's what happens. I mean, you're fishing for them from before sunrise to about eight o'clock and they're rolling like crazy. And if it's super cloudy, they'll keep rolling. But if that sun comes out and the sun comes up, it's done. I mean, it's done sometimes before that, like seven 30, you'll be lucky to see, I mean, they'll roll occasionally here and there, but do you think that's kind of what that feels like? All of a sudden the, yeah, the I, water just has more oxygen in it. Like all of a sudden, just like, Oh, that's well, I would awesome. Say the, um, yeah, yeah, I think so. But I would say the the role I'd take a step more is more like um like a shot of Red Bull. Because I think, <laughs> you know, water's got about w roughly about 1% oxygen, mm -hmm. but air has 21% oxygen. So you get a lot more oxygen from the air than you do the water. So, um, you know, I think one thing you're right, when, when that photosynthesis kicks in, you know, they could breathe, they don't have to roll as much. But on the other side is, you know, when you're when you're fighting a tarpon, you know, the fish is, you know, fighting you. It's being exhausted. You know, that that oxygen gives it a huge advantage to extend the fight because now he's he's gulping. He or she is gulping 21 percent oxygen mm -hmm. instead of trying to drain one percent from their gills. 
you know, so it well, gives them, then, you know, that's why we fight them for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know, the other thing that you see is as they're moving down the ocean side, or if you've been fortunate enough to see a big school of tarpon offshore, like uh, sometimes if you're at the reef, you'll see 500 tarpon coming in and they are rolling like crazy, just rolling, rolling, rolling. And I've always thought that was like, you know, like us running, running a marathon or something or running a 5k, like all of a sudden your breathing starts picking up and you're, you're, they're rolling and they're moving. And, and you can see that that school is moving through there. It's moving at miles an hour and, and they're rolling like crazy. And then you see them at like, you know, Bahia Honda or someplace like that, where the current is really ripping through there mm-hmm. and they're holding there and fish are rolling everywhere. Like they're everywhere rolling. But is that, is that because they're having to hold in that, in that current? Or no, I think, I think you're exactly else. right. Yeah, yeah, they're they're exerting more ox- more energy. They need more oxygen. So mm-hmm. yeah, and it's a big benefit to get that 21% air versus that one percent. Especially, um, you know, the the hotter the water, the lower the oxygen content. So even if if the water gets super super hot, you know, the oxygen level goes down in that water. Even with photosynthesis, the oxygen level that the that the water can hold goes right. down so now what really about take advantage of that. how much how much does it matter that that the wind is is churning up the water a little bit like if you got a little a little rip it's blowing it's blowing 15 or 20 versus blowing zero because on those days yeah, the fish are rolling everywhere like obviously you can see them much better but if you if you're out there a lot you're like okay well they're just rolling more today and i can see them better but the fish are rolling everywhere. You're saying they're rolling more on a, on on a slick comb day. day. Right, slick comb, right? And then on a windy day, yeah, they'll still roll, but you don't see them rolling as much. It's also harder to see them, so maybe maybe they are. I don't know, but it, it seems like... No, I would think definitely... The, water, the wind yeah, would be say, churning that up and, and providing oxygen to the yeah. water more so than on a slick day, right? On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the oxygen content will be a lot is a lot higher during a windy day where it's all turned up and stirred up, versus yeah that flat calm day where the water, the sun is just beating down that water and jacking up the temperature and lowering the oxygen content. So yeah, yeah, very. So so you're right. You they'll roll less during that windy mm-hmm. day versus a, a flat calm day there. Gotcha. And then you the know, last thing that you said was was to to mimic each yes, other's behavior, yeah. but, right? Yeah. But before I go into that, I'm going to talk about the, the buoyancy. So, oh, yeah. and you've probably seen it like they, they, so they use it for low oxygen levels, they adjust their buoyancy and imitate each other. So the second one adjusts buoyancy. So, you know, they'll roll and then you, you've probably seen it like that breadcrumb trail. Of Absolutely. Bubbles. Yeah. What they're doing is they're just, they're, they'll actually expel it. Okay. It just swallowed a bunch of air. It has too much, so it'll expel it out of its gills. So you can use that to your advantage, too, if you try to, you know, follow that breadcrumb trail. Like, I know they're going left. Mm-hmm. I know they're going right. Yeah, for sure. Breadcrumb trail. Catch a lot of fish like that because, you know, they if it's low light in the morning and they roll and they take a right and you cast to the left, they don't see the thing. They don't see the fly. But yeah. if you can yeah, watch yeah, yeah, for yeah. those bubbles... They absolutely, that absolutely works. Now they can continue moving that way and then turn. And sometimes it doesn't 
work exactly right, but it gives you an idea anyway of where they're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they get to the imitation thing. So it was a really interesting study back in the seventies where they they didn't know, you know, what causes them to roll. Is it visual? Is it the water line? Is it sound? You know, so what they did was they put tarpon next to each other, but they all were in a different tank. So they could see each other through the glass, but they couldn't, they couldn't hear each other. The water line wouldn't pick anything up and they, they, they would imitate each other. If one tarpon rolls, you have a 70% chance that the tarpon next to it is going to roll. So, and then what was really funny about this paper was they took it another, another level, like, okay, so they're imitating each other. So they actually made a wooden tarpon and painted it, and put it in there, and they would actually wrote, they put a little string on it and would raise it. And if they if it raised and went up the surface and went down like the same similar behavior to a tarpon, then the one next to it would roll. And then they did it with a spatula, and the same thing if they raise it and lowered it at the same time. So it was just funny that you know they could Man, imitate each other. That's and the new that's the new thing that we need to have. We need to have something that that spatula. that yeah. You go out there, you're like, I wonder if there are any tarpon here. Let's put out the decoy and, <laughs> and make it roll. Uh, hey, listen, people. There are a lot of tarpon fishermen that their brain is is turning right now. They're thinking decoys. Yes, I use them turkey hunting. I use them deer hunting why not why wouldn't we use one tarpon fishing <laughs> i never i never thought of it that, that way but yeah you just so that's your test to see if they roll yeah because they do imitate each other <laughs> <laughs> you could do that you could do a, a little decoy uh, uh experiment just like you did with a spatula and everything you just go to you know one of the one of the docks like hawks k or robbie's or whatever and put in your your fake tarpon and make it roll and see what see what happened that's what it's like to be yeah, a well, scientist you do it, i could yeah, give me some some royalties if you ever sell it on you know on your <laughs> I'll put you on there. <laughs> but uh but and then um you know but that's it for the for the for the rolling. Just you know, use it to your to your advantage, you know. Go if obviously, you know, the early bird gets a worm and I know tarpon guys are always out there at sunrise because they mm-hmm. see them roll then, right? Mm-hmm. And then look for the when they do roll, look for the 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 breadcrumb trail of bubbles and, um, and they imitate each other too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. That is cool. The tarpon is a fascinating fish and, and it's one of those fish where kind of the more you learn about them, the more you realize there, there is to learn. So as a scientist, like when you're learning these things about, you know, you've seen one travel 2000 miles. They don't, the Florida fish seem to go to Louisiana and turn around and go the other way. I don't know what we know about them going up the, the other coast, like up towards Maine and all of that. If there's a, if there's another big river, um, that they kind of turn around or if it's just colder temperatures that they just maybe don't like, but I know that they've been seen way, way up there. But as you learn, they have like yeah. all yeah. of this, this kind of these things that we're learning, does it, give you hope that one day we kind of figure this fish out or is it like, man, the more you learn, the more mysterious this fish actually is like, what, what is your kind of, where do you sit with that? Yeah. The more we learn, the better, right. I definitely, uh, feel that way. And, and then, you know, we did have them go up to Chesapeake. We think they're up there feeding off, um, prey items, but, um, but yeah, it's just such a, a fascinating fish and, and that's been on this planet much, much longer than we have been. So the more we learn, and I, this goes for probably all fish, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a fan of ignorance, right? The more we know, the more we can manage them, the more we can try to make sure they're around for generations to come. So it's definitely to our, to our benefit to learn more about them. Nice. All right. Well, if we could do one more thing, 
Um, I did, you know, I did remember one last thing about the satellite tag. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention. So to go back to that. So, um, so where do they disappear to? So we had some, um, very interesting results. So, um, you know, where are they like overwintering, mm. you know, and we, we had a group of tarpon hang out about 30 miles West of Naples. So, and then, and then, the, the, and then it would move into the Everglades. So it's just interesting that they're, they're out there where are they overwintering. And then also, um, I went to a, a conference and there was, um, uh, some, some video of some divers recording them in the winter. So we're talking like, you know, like January, February, off of the, um, uh, what's it called? The, the oil rigs there mm-hmm. in like a hundred feet down. And, um, I don't know, somehow they, they claimed that there's warm water there. Which I don't understand the physics, why warm, warm water is typically at the surface, not a hundred feet down. But, but anyway, it's just interesting. There's still a lot more overwintering and in, in hiding spots. We need to learn about them, but that fascinating that they were 30 miles off of Naples there well, as you well know, off at the oil yeah, rigs. That is super interesting. And we're, right before we started this, we were talking about one of the first times that we, we, um, encountered one another was when you were fishing with Billy Pate a lot. And, um, he wanted to come down to Key West and, and fish with me and we never got that, that going, but I, w- I wish that would have been a great opportunity to fish with Billy Pate. That would have been amazing. But what, when, when Billy was doing his videos, the 3M tarpon fishing videos, he did, he did two primary and he kind of alluded to the fact that these tarpon migrate. This is what we know about them. And back then, maybe this was the common belief. I don't know. But they swam off the coast of Africa. They swam all the way up here. And then they just appeared in, the, in, in Florida. And I was always kind of trying to put that together in my head. Like, okay, it's, it's, um, it's you know, March. And you're not seeing a lot of fish. And then you get a nice day and here they are. Now, how did those fish know that it was going to be nice today? Like, I don't buy that they were swimming from Africa and they just showed up on this nice day and every other nice yeah, day yeah. they show up. Yeah. Like, they're, I was always under the impression, like, there's got to be a place where they're just a few miles off the, off, off the, the ocean side. And then a nice day comes up and they push in, right? Like, that just made yeah. m- way yeah, more yeah. sense to me than all of a sudden they just kind of, cor- you know, it corresponded that they would make this big giant migratory move and you would see them in the wintertime and, you know, you get a nice day in January, you get a nice day in February and they would just push in. And then as soon as that next cold front would come in, they'd be gone. So what about those fish? Like, I'm sure that there is this migration that's, that's a real big long migration. And then there's probably, it seems like there's, there's other behavior where there's maybe, you know, they just kind of hang out 30 miles off Naples and then they push in and then they, then they go away and then you don't see them again. And w- did they swim to Africa? Like, I, I don't know. Like <laughs> what, that's, that's the mystery here. And and that's where that kind of, that was kind of the common belief a long time ago that there was just this, it was like a bird migration. They just, just keep going and keep going and keep going. They might go 2000 miles and some of them probably do, but maybe do all of them do something like that? Or is, is when you learn the, 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 about those fish off of Naples, like, does that kind of give you like, I, I bet there's dozens, hundreds of places like this where these yeah, fish I agree, sit. I agree. Yeah. 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 But I don't think they come from Africa. I think you Billy did that long before um, we did the satellite tag. And I was really lucky to be able to work closely with Billy and, and fish with him and stay with him. And that was really a, a, 
a blessing, you know, because I always, you know, I have, I have his videos too. I have his, I probably have in my storage. I could probably you know, tell, I could, if you don't have them, I can, I can recite them verbatim. <laughs> I watched those things back and forth. It was so long and big around as my waist. <laughs> he points to it behind him. It was the greatest video of all time. <laughs> and I remember when I met him, I was nervous and I was like, so cool to meet him. And I was telling my, my friend, like, dude, this is like you meeting Michael Jordan. Yes. You know, I mean, it was just such an experience to, and then I got to stay with them and fish with them. But, but anyway, they, they don't, we, no fish are moved. We haven't seen any fish move from there. Certainly are tarpon over in, um, over off the West coast of Africa. And then we haven't had any fish, you know, make that migration across the Atlantic. There is a chance that the larvae may though. There's some currents that come off Africa and they, their larvae can live up to six months. So there is a chance that tarpon larvae could come over, but in terms of the, the big ones, but you know, we've always wondered where they were too, you know, overwintering. And then we found that spot, you know, um, 30 miles off of Naples there. And then we saw the, you know, the oil rigs, but, but I, I think you made a great point. I think there's, there's many, other overwintering locations. We just haven't discovered them yet. Just like mm -hmm. there's probably many more tarpon um, spawning locations. Uh, you know, we have four, but that doesn't mean that those are the only four. Like, I think there's more. We just learn more and more as, as the tagging and the research continues. Got it. Very interesting. Yeah, that's so cool, man. Um, well, I'm really looking forward to talking to you again about bonefish. Um, I know this is going to be a very popular podcast because everybody that listens to this loves the tarpon. and um, why wouldn't you? They're they're an incredible, mysterious, amazing fish that that is incredibly rewarding to catch because they're so acrobatic and sometimes they're so easy and sometimes they're so hard and like <laughs> they're just they're just like the ultimate game fish in my opinion. They eat basically everything, including tiny little things that look like flies. Um, so they they appeal to everybody. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> nice. And they've been around a long time, well, longer than we've been on this planet. I know. So we gotta give them respect for that. Give them respect <laughs> and and take care of them. Make sure that they're on this planet for a lot longer. Um, all right, man. Well, well, thanks for this. I really appreciate it. If uh, people wanted to check out any of your of your stuff, I know you said you weren't on Instagram, um, but is there? You got anything people can check out? Yeah, I guess if if people had any questions, um, they could email me at. Uh, Elopomorph at gmail.com and I'll spell it real quick. It's E-L-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H. Elopomorph at hop. I'm sorry, no, Elopomorph at gmail, gmail.com. I'm always available for questions and more discussions about um tarpon. So I'd be happy to answer any questions. Okay. If, so if has for any. the non-scientific people, what is an elopomorph? Oh, good question. That's <laughs> the, the suborder of of tarpon and bonefish. Nice. So that's what I like because no one else has it, but yet it's a suborder of tarpon and bonefish. Like if I ever get a boat, that's what I'm going to call it, the elopomorph. You know, but no one else, you know, it sounds like a, no one else knows what it means, but I know what it means. Just add elopomorph. Do like just don't put just add. Like that's my, <laughs> that's my pet peeve on boat names. Like just add, just add salt, just add water, just, you know, yeah. real, real salty, R-E-E. -E. You'll be real elopomorph. <laughs> if if somebody else has it, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It gotcha. seems like in fact, they're probably people are probably putting in their boat right now. Unfortunately, they are with that name soon. But <laughs> you, you, you know, they'll just have to be real elopomorph. You'll you'll be the original. I'll be the OG, the original yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. All right, Mike. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll get together for another one on bonefish in the next couple of weeks. So uh, look forward to that. All right, that's it for today. So. See you. 
brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.